Hi everyone and welcome to our Diversity Faculty podcast series. I'm Chloe Halls, an Associate in the Employment and Incentives team at Linklaters and I'll be joined today by my colleague FN Alana to discuss ethnicity pay gap reporting. Over the years there have been several calls for the government to make ethnicity pay gap reporting mandatory. In the wake of the first gender pay gap reporting deadline back in 2018, the government launched a consultation on a mandatory approach to ethnicity pay gap reporting. But four years after it closed, in July 2023, they confirmed that they wouldn't be making it mandatory. In their view, it may not always be the most appropriate mechanism for every type of employer. Nonetheless, we're seeing many employers voluntarily choosing to report their ethnicity pay gap. But that's not without its challenges which is why the government's recent ethnicity pay gap reporting guidance, published in April 2023, has been welcomed by many employers. In this podcast, we look at the guidance and how it can guide employers who voluntarily report on their ethnicity pay gaps. Given how quickly the employment landscape is moving at the moment, it's also worth mentioning that this podcast reflects the position as at August 2023. So firstly, Erfan, can you tell us a bit more about the background to ethnicity pay gap reporting and its challenges? So regulations requiring employers with at least 250 employees to publish data on their gender pay gaps came into effect in April 2017. As you know, this has placed greater emphasis on gender diversity and has forced organisations to take action to resolve some of the underlying causes of the gender pay gap, such as the underrepresentation of women in high paid roles. With the ethnicity pay gap, it's not possible to take a cut and paste approach to gender pay gap reporting. It's more complicated for a number of reasons, including the potential involvement of many ethnic groups and the need to understand the different outcomes for these groups, organisations' lack of data about employee ethnicity, variations in the ethnic diversity of the local workforce, and the likely need for employers to combine different ethnic groups to ensure their results are reliable and statistically sound, and to protect confidentiality. This complexity is one of the reasons why the government has decided that ethnicity pay gap reporting should only be voluntary. The new ethnicity pay gap reporting guidance is the first government guidance which sets out a consistent approach to measuring pay differences, and aims to ensure that employers develop a consistent approach to ethnicity pay reporting which can then lead to meaningful action. So where employers do choose to report, the guidance can really help them to navigate the unique challenges relating to measuring the ethnicity pay gap. So then could you tell us a bit about what a pay gap is? Because it's not the same as equal pay, is it? That's right. Unequal pay means that employees performing equal work or work of equal value are not receiving equal pay. Rather, an ethnicity pay gap is a measure of the difference between ethnic groups' average earnings across an organisation or the labour market as a whole, over a period of time, regardless of role or seniority. That might be because a higher proportion of black and Asian employees are in the lowest pay bands, and a higher proportion of white British employees are in the highest pay bands, meaning that the average hourly pay for black and Asian employees is lower than the average hourly pay for white British employees. So... Even if an employer has a fair pay and reward policy, and even if it has equal pay, it could still have a pay gap. And so how does the new guidance then help employers to understand whether these types of disparities exist between different ethnic groups in their organisation? So the new ethnicity pay gap reporting guidance covers five main topics. 
Firstly, collecting employees' ethnicity data. Secondly, gathering the required payroll data for ethnicity pay calculations. Thirdly, making ethnicity pay calculations. Fourthly, analysing and understanding the results of these calculations. And finally, developing an action plan to address any identified disparities. Generally, the government guidance is that employers should mirror the gender pay gap reporting regime, but with a few amendments. Like with gender pay gap reporting, this means that employers should calculate mean and median ethnicity pay gap, mean and median bonus cap, the proportion of each ethnic group receiving a bonus, and the proportion of each ethnic group within pay quartiles. In addition, the guidance also says that employers should calculate and present the representation of ethnic groups across the organisation as a whole, and the percentage of employees who did not disclose their ethnicity. But some quite unique challenges arise with ethnicity pay gap reporting in comparison with gender pay gap reporting, don't they? So perhaps you can tell us a bit more about that. Yes, so the first key issue is related to small groups. The guidance recommends that employers use the harmonised standards for collecting someone's ethnicity where possible. This allows individuals to identify as one of 17 different ethnicity groups. The issue this raises is that if an individual belongs to a group which has very little representation in the organisation, the data is unlikely to be meaningful as it would be liable to change a lot with the addition or removal of a few people. Publishing data about very small groups also risks identifying individual employees, which raises GDPR issues. The guidance does acknowledge these issues and tries to mitigate them by creating reporting thresholds linked to employee group size. For internal reporting, the guidance recommends that a minimum category size of between 5 and 20 employees should be used, and for external reporting, the guidance recommends that a minimum category size of 50 employees should be used. These thresholds aren't fixed, and employers can report for groups under these thresholds if they're comfortable that they have meaningful data and that they're complying with data protection laws. But will those reporting thresholds actually be practical for organisations? So that's a really good point to draw out. Thinking about external reporting, many employers, particularly outside London, would struggle to meet the 50 employee threshold for many of the 17 different ethnicity groups. The guidance does state that where employers are unable to report gaps by all of the 17 ethnicity groups, employees should be grouped together into five broader categories, white, black, Asian, mixed and other. But even where these broader groups are used, the 50 employee threshold may prove to be problematic. And are there any other issues with these broader groups? Because I can imagine some of the nuances get lost if we don't use the narrow ethnicity groups. Yes, exactly. So, for example, Indian and Chinese individuals tend to earn more than Bangladeshi and Pakistani individuals. These significant pay differences get lost within the broader groups. And so what about reporting on a binary basis? So, for example, comparing white British and all other ethnic minorities combined? Well, the guidance strongly discourages reporting only on a binary basis. The guidance highlights that reporting only a binary gap would mask detail and nuance, which might be vital for understanding ethnicity pay gaps. And I think that's right. And of course, the other thing which is vital for understanding ethnicity pay gaps is meaningful data. Many employers just don't have this type of granular data to work from. So what approach should they take when dealing with incomplete data sets? So the guidance provides that employers should effectively publish a response rate as they need to publish the percentage of employees who have responded, prefer not to say, or have not disclosed their ethnicity. 
Clearly, a low response rate would lead to less meaningful data to report on and may reflect badly on the organisation. It's important that employers develop meaningful employee communications with a clear explanation regarding the purpose of ethnicity pay gap reporting for that organisation and what the data will be used for to build employee trust and improve participation rates. So once employers have collected the data and made the calculations, what does reporting on this actually involve? In addition to presenting their calculations, the guidance says that employers reporting their ethnicity pay gap should consider a supporting narrative that includes the following elements. Um, so firstly, explanations for each of the pay figures in the report. Secondly, a summary of why the employer believes any pay disparities exist based on close analysis of the data and broader factors. The guidance recognises that reasons for any pay gaps are likely to be complex, multidimensional. Um, the guidance also says that the supporting narrative should include wider workforce statistics, so the employer can provide a wider and more clear picture of why any pay differences exist. Finally, the supporting narrative should set out the efforts the organisation has already taken to understand and address any disparities. Um, so overall, there's a really big emphasis on understanding your data and the messages an employer can take from the data and it being a catalyst for change in the organisation. The guidance provides a relatively holistic and wide-ranging set of questions around internal and external factors which an employer can sensibly ask itself. So what sorts of questions should employers be asking themselves? Um, so for example, say your data shows lower pay among a particular ethnic group and that is because that group disproportionately occupies the more junior positions in the organisation. The guidance says employers should ask whether they do enough to provide adequate progression opportunities for people in that group and that includes asking why, do that, why does that group only reach so far up the organisation? What is stopping members of that group occupying a proportionate number of more senior roles? Why do members of this group mostly apply for the junior roles in the first place? Does that group suffer from particularly high turnover? And are there external factors such as the qualifications needed for a role driving this? The guidance says that employees may also want to consider publishing an action plan that explains how they intend to address unfair pay gaps and their ethnicity pay figures. Actions should have clear measurable targets and be aimed at better understanding the organisation's pay statistics and addressing any unfair disparities. And you mentioned data protection earlier. That's obviously top of the agenda for many employers. What are the key points employers really should be aware of then in this context? Um, so this topic could really be a whole podcast on its own, given there's so much to think about, but I'll just try to cover it in a nutshell. Um, overall, the guidance doesn't really address this point in as much detail as you'd expect. Um, however, the key point is that personal data revealing racial or ethnic origin is considered special category data and its use is subject to additional safeguards. Organisations must have a lawful basis to process ethnicity data and a specific purpose for doing so, such as ensuring equality of opportunity within the organisation. Data processing must also be transparent, secure and necessary to achieve this purpose. If employers follow the government guidance, this aspect should generally not be an issue. Organisations should also bear in mind that, firstly, they must also have in place a policy covering matters such as data integrity, confidentiality, retention and erasure, and secondly, they must carry out and regularly review 
a data protection impact assessment to identify the risks to the rights of employees posed by ethnicity pay gap reporting and how they will be protected. Some or all of a previous data protection impact assessment will likely be able to be used for these purposes. So then what can employers take from this? Because in the short term, many employers will be grappling with the fact that they don't actually have the data in the first place to be able to report meaningfully. But as we know, of course, ethnicity data is increasingly receiving more attention by regulators and stakeholders. That's right, and I think there are two key points here. Firstly, as you mentioned, the first step is for employers to have statistically significant data so that the figures they produce are meaningful. Without this, it will be difficult for employers to understand what action is required. Secondly, when employers have built this data, and those organisations who are already reporting on the ethnicity pay gap may have such data already, the key is to really reflect on the data and ask those questions we talked about earlier. I think far more so compared to gender pay gap reporting, there can be very organisational specific reasons for why there are ethnicity pay gaps, so a blanket approach won't work. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So, so what would you say then is next in this space? Do you think ethnicity pay gap reporting will become mandatory? Well, it remains to be seen whether the government's guidance for employers wishing to report voluntarily will have the effect of promoting more reporting. At this stage, there is no expectation that ethnicity pay gap reporting will become mandatory, and the current UK government has confirmed as such on more than one occasion. But it's worth noting that in response to the publication of this guidance and the wider Inclusive Britain Progress Report, Labour's Shadow Women and Equality Secretary repeated her commitment in April 2023 to make ethnicity pay gap reporting mandatory for employees with 250 or more employees if it forms the government, similar to the threshold for gender pay gap reporting. In the meantime, we are seeing an increased focus on the governance and reporting of DEI issues more broadly by companies across the UK and EU from a legal, regulatory and voluntary basis. It's a continuously evolving area, so we'll be watching this space with interest. We certainly will. Thanks, Erfan. And that's all from us today, and we hope you enjoyed listening. You'll find more podcast series, blogs and more on our Linklaters Diversity Faculty webpage.